recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 1st, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Before I start, I want to talk about what white is. It seems to me that some white nationalists don't understand what white is. I don't know how they could be white nationalists. Well, one of them actually has um, a couple of popular websites. Another one is struggling but trying to be somebody. He's, he's trying to be a great white leader, and, and, and really he's just been a dud, but perhaps he's better off that way. The... Um, The idea that we have of white should never, ever be compromised. And even if we ourselves, and, and I, I know that there's some people in Christian identity that, that, that express doubts and think they may be um, screwed in the end, and, and, and that would be unfortunate, that's the way it is. That's part of our punishment as a people our Bible tells us it would be that way. Even if we express doubts about ourselves, we should never compromise our ideals. White is white. White is not gray. It's not one drop of gray. It's not two drops of gray. It's not one-eighth Jewish ancestry. It's not one-sixteenth Jewish or, or Arab or Negro or American Indian or any other sort of ancestry. White is white. White is 100% white. That's why the color represents purity. We should never compromise that ideal. A lot of white nationalists like to point to Adolf Hitler and say, well, the National Socialists allowed quarter Jews to be Aryanized. So it was okay with them. It should be okay with us. Well, you know, Adolf Hitler was a great leader. He was a visionary. And he was a man, and he made mistakes. That was one of them. And in the end, yet, you know, some people say, well, I don't know how um, Hitler got hurt by letting one-quarter Jews in, into, the, um, into the government and, and the military and National Socialist Germany. Well, he did get hurt. Adolf Hitler himself had written, he, he had written about how the Prussian nobility, for a hundred years before his time, was intermingling and intermarrying with the Jews. And I don't have any specific instances in mind, but it was the Prussian nobility that sold Adolf Hitler out. It was the Prussian nobility, generals of the Prussian, Prussian nobility, that despised Adolf Hitler the most, and many of them turned traitor, or seeking their own glory, indirectly betrayed him. That's besides the point. One-fourth Jew, one-sixteenth Jew, one-sixty-fourth Jew is not white. It's not, by any means. White is white, and there is no compromise, period. With that being said, I believe this is going, I could be wrong, this is, I, I believe this is going to be the 24th installment of my series on the Book of Acts. I know the last six installments don't have the same listenership that the first 18 may have had. I mean, most of the programs got over 1,000 downloads. 
it's a shame that people can't stick it through the end and 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 fully investigate all of the details of these scriptures because they're extremely important. Acts chapter 17 was extremely important. They're all extremely important. My endeavor is, even though I may not do it perfectly, I'm not saying I will, my endeavor is to build an absolutely academic basis for the truth of Christian identity. And to do that, we need a full biblical commentary. My podcasts may not be perfect, but they're that they will serve me as that commentary. I, I pray that they serve others. They will serve me as the basis for that commentary. And eventually, Yahweh willing, I will pull all these podcast notes back out. I've already done it with the Revelation, of course, and um, what with several of my notes on a minor prophets and, and things like that, and put them into print in the Saxon Messenger. And soon, I pray they'll be in print in other venues as standalone works so that people can obtain a PDF or a print copy of my commentary on Amos or my commentary on Joel or my commentary on Matthew. And it's coming. It's down the road. I can only do so many things. I have too many irons in the fire. Half of my time is spent tied up in technical endeavors and the other half in, in content production. So it's difficult for me to go back and um, polish and revise and edit my works for print. I do the best that I can when I produce a podcast to post my notes online. That's um, that's the way it is when you're a one-man operation. That's okay. We're, we're going to get there, Yahweh willing. Tonight we will present the book of Acts, chapter 18. The end of Acts chapter 17 leaves off with Paul in Athens after his speech on the Hill of Airs. His words were mocked by many of the Athenians, but did not fall entirely on deaf ears since, as Luke tells us, some men joining themselves to him believed. He had also already converted a good number of Judeans and Greeks to the, to the gospel of Christ in the Judean assembly hall at Athens. One of those men was a jurist of the Areopagus, which was the famous court held on Ayers Hill. And he must have therefore been an influential man. And, and that following Christianity, influential men following real Christianity, put their, their careers at risk, right? Dionysius is not mentioned again. The, the Areopagite is not mentioned again in Scripture. So we really don't know of his fate. Two elements of Paul's address to the Athenians are important enough to mention once again. The first is that the Athenians, mocking Paul for talking about a resurrection of the dead, were actually also denying many of their own most ancient beliefs, reflected in the early poetry and literature of Athens, down through the tragic poets and the writings of men such as Apollodorus of Athens, who lived only two centuries before Paul. So we see that the Athenians had, had basically abandoned that their ancient beliefs as folly, the belief in eternal life, the belief in resurrection of the dead. They abandoned those things as folly because they were now sophisticated philosophers, sophisticated worldly philosophers. 
Today we see the same patterns all over again. There's no doubt. More importantly is the substance of Paul's address to the Athenians. These men were Ionian Greeks, descended from the Japhethites of Scripture, the sons of Javan mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. The identification is certain when Hebrew, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the Persian inscriptions which mention the Yavana, or Ionian Greeks, and the ancient historical records are all compared. For this reason, in Paul's address to these people, we see none of the references to Moses, the Hebrew law, the Hebrew patriarchs, or the ideas of sin or redemption or the other things which are only relevant to the children of Israel and their special relationship to Christ. Instead of accusing the Athenians of sin, Paul accused them of ignorance because their fathers did not have the benefits of the knowledge of God transmitted to the Israelites and the Hebrew patriarchs. He told them that God was overlooking the times of ignorance. There's a huge contrast there. He didn't accuse them of sin. He accused them of ignorance because they never had the benefits of the word of God, the oracles of Yahweh that the Hebrews had, that the Israelites had. Rather, we see that Paul restricted his discourse to references and allusions to Old Testament scriptures, such as Deuteronomy 32.8, or the biblical Genesis creation account, which do indeed apply to the wider Adamic race as a whole. This was the same way that Jonah addressed the Assyrians, who were the descendants of that Asher, the son of Shem, of Genesis chapter 10. Paul further exhorted them to depart from idolatry and to repent by seeking the God of creation, who was also their father. Adam was the son of God. And he takes advantage of the words of their own poet, the poet Aratus, in order to convey that message. Aratus, A-R-A-T-U-S. This is important to note because Paul's address to the Athenians and also his early address, his earlier address to the Lycaonians found in Acts chapter 14, established that Paul indeed understood the scope of the application of Scripture to the wider Adamic race in comparison to the actual descendants of the tribes of Israel. Of course, the wider Adamic race was treated differently than the actual descendants of the tribes of Israel. And that's absolutely clear in Paul's address to the Lycaonians and in his address to the Athenians. And Paul understood these things in the same manner, in the exact same manner that identity Christians today understand it. Paul clearly distinguished between genetic Israelites and Adamic non-Israelites the way all Christians today should also 
make that distinction. Paul did not spiritualize sperm and attempt to make some sort of spiritual Israelites out of the Japhethites he was addressing in Lycaonia and in Athens. This is also important to understand because, in Paul's view, we see that the historical application of Scripture is just as relevant to him as it was in the Old Testament. Paul employed the historical application of Scripture throughout his epistles as well. To, therefore, today, that application must still be relevant. Although all of the mainstream denominational sects have now turned to universalism, and they ignore the, spiritual, the, the historical application of Scripture, and they spiritualize it. They create spiritual sperm. God didn't create any spiritual sperm. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the spirit is sown a natural body. It's sown in decay. It's sown in corruption. It's sown in the flesh. The spirit comes from the flesh. The promises are to the seed. Paul employed the historical application of Scripture throughout his epistles as well. Therefore, today, that application must still be relevant. However, the mainstream denominational sects deny the validity of Scripture as we see that Paul himself applied it which is evident throughout his epistles. We quoted se several places last week to demonstrate how Paul treated Israelites. It's evident throughout his epistles in places such as Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In contrast to Paul's accusation that the Athenians suffered times of ignorance, Paul told the Romans that they knew God, but that they had changed his incorruptible glory into a corruptible glory, and thereby they worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Paul told the Athenians that they should seek God. He didn't tell them that they knew God. He told them that Yahweh forgive the times of ignorance. He didn't tell the Romans that they were ever ignorant. He told the Romans they were guilty because they knew God and perverted the estimation of their God in pagan idols. The difference is that the Ionians were Japhethites. But the Romans were descended from Israel, and that's a separate story. The Israelites, who left Egypt before the Exodus and arrived in Troy and became Trojans. And from there, several centuries later, moved on to 
to Italy. Likewise, Paul told the Corinthians that they were that they too were of Israel, having been in the Exodus with Moses. And that the things written in the Old Testament related to them and were written for our admonition, meaning the admonition of the Corinthians as well as his own. The Athenians were in ignorance, but the ancestors of the Romans and the Corinthians were not. All of this and many other aspects of Paul's epistles prove beyond doubt the validity of the historical application of Scripture both before and after the cross of Christ. That's why Israel, by Paul at the end of Acts, by James in the opening of his epistle, and by Yahshua Christ in Revelation chapter 7, Israel is still reckoned by tribes. Spiritual sperm cannot be reckoned by tribes. I would challenge anybody to show me how that's done. Israel, throughout the New Testament, continues to be reckoned by tribes. Tribes are genetic units of people who self-perpetuate by reproduction. With this, we will commence with Acts chapter 18. I'm going to recite one line and then go into another long diatribe, right? Verse 1, after these things, after his speech on Ayers Hill, or the Areopagus, Departing from Athens, he went into Corinth. Now, there are several variations of this verse among the ancient manuscripts. The version in the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, mentions Paul explicitly. The following comments are going to comment on the Corinthians, who they were. The following comments are contracted from a paper at Christagenia.org which I had written perhaps 10 years ago, Clifton may know better, entitled Classical Records of the Dorian and Danon Israelite Greeks. I won't be getting into the Danons here tonight. The Corinthians were Dorian Greeks, a tribe said to have invaded Greece a short time after the Trojan Wars. The Greeks who inhabited all of the Peloponnesus before the Dorian invasion, as well as certain areas of the mainland, were called everywhere Danans and Achaeans by Homer. Modern historians assert that the Dorians came from the north, and they point to the Dorian Tetrapolis, which are four cities on the Greek mainland, as evidence of this. And... and I have to say that Thucydides, the Athenian historian, also had believed this as early as the 5th century BC. I think that he was misguided. 
These historians also claim that all Aryans, speaking of the modern historians, they claim that all Aryans came from the north into the ancient world at one time or another. Yet they are consistently in error. Homer is given much credit by Strabo, the geographer, for his knowledge and accuracy in describing the peoples of the Oikumene and the regions where they lived. And the poet is consistent, constantly cited by the geographer. Homer described all of the people of Greece and all the peoples and places known to the Greeks in the period about which he wrote. Yet Homer makes no mention of the cities of the Tetrapolis. He makes no mention of Dorians in Greece or anywhere in the north, and he was well familiar with the peoples of the north. The Dorians, who invaded Greece by sea, according to all accounts, which is hardly necessary if they came from the north, and pushed the Danans out of the Peloponnesus, and who later also founded their mainland cities, only mentioned are only mentioned by Homer as being on Crete in his Odyssey, Book 19. It is therefore my contention that the Dorians actually came from Dor in Palestine, a city on the coast of the land of Manasseh, and where many ancient so-called Greek artifacts have been found by archaeologists. These artifacts show a Greek presence at Dor as early as the 7th century BC, if not earlier. And these artifacts are certainly much earlier than the Hellenistic period. The 7th century B.C. is the time of the last recorded Assyrian deportations of Israelites, which happened probably about 676 B.C. in the reign of Esarhaddon. There is archaeological evidence that Israelite priests were indeed present at Dor up until the Assyrian deportations. The so-called Greek artifacts at Dor are from layers which are known to precede the Assyrian deportations. Archaeological layers. If the Dorians migrated from Palestine rather than from the north, Crete is a logical place to begin settling en route to the west. Further evidence that the Dorians were Israelites is found in Josephus. In his, in his record of a letter written by a Spartan, and the Spartans were also called Lacedaemonians, but they were also Dorian Greeks. Josephus records the letter written by a Spartan king to Jerusalem, and the letter was written about 160 B.C. It's found in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 12, Chapter 4, or in the Loeb Classical Library numbering system, Book 12, Lines 226 and 227. And I quote, Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, he was the high priest at the time, send his greeting. We have met with a certain writing whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of one stock and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. 
hardly possible if they came from the north. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concern as you please. We will also do the same thing, and esteem your concerns as our own, and will look upon our concerns as in common with yours. Demodeles, who brings you this letter, will bring your answer back to us. This letter is four square, and a seal is an eagle with a dragon in his claws. That this account of the letter and its contents is factual, is verified by the reply to the letter recorded by Josephus at Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 5, from Book 13, Line 163, in the Loeb Classical Library System, by Jonathan, the High Priest. The reply to this letter was long delayed. There were wars in Judea, wars between the Maccabees and the kings of the Seleucid kings of Syria. The temple was destroyed in that period. But this letter is also the reply, not the letter from the Spartans, but the reply to the Spartans is also documented in the first book of Maccabees. Chapter 12, known to us from the Apocrypha. Here I'm going to read the version from Brenton's Septuagint. Jonathan, the high priest, and the elders of the nation, and the priests, and the other people of the Judeans, under the Lacedaemonians and their brethren, send greeting. There were letters sent in times past unto Alnaeus, the high priest from Darius, who reigned then among you, to signify that ye are our brethren, as the copy here underwritten does specify, at which time Onias entreated the ambassador that was sent honorably and received the letters, wherein declaration was made of the league and friendship. Therefore we also, albeit we need none of these things, for that we have the holy books of Scripture in our hands to comfort us, have nevertheless attempted to send to you for the renewing of brotherhood and friendship, lest we should become strangers unto you altogether. For there is a time long past since you sent unto us. We therefore at all times without ceasing, both in our feasts and other convenient days, do remember you in the sacrifices which we offer, and in our prayers, as reason is. And as it becomes us to think upon our brethren, we are right glad of your honor. And this is the copy of the letters which only are as sent. And the letter, the original letter, is quoted here, or perhaps paraphrased, continuing from 1 Maccabees chapter 12. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, the high priest, greeting. It is found in writing that the Lacedaemonians and Judeans are brethren, and that they are of the stock of Abraham. Now therefore, since this has come to our knowledge, we shall do well to write unto you, unto us, I'm sorry, you shall do well to write unto us of your prosperity. We do write back to you again, 
that your cattle and goods are ours and ours are yours. We do command, therefore, our ambassadors to make report unto you on this wise. Now, there's a lot of talk about these letters that, uh, oh, they were just brethren. That, that, that was only a friendly treaty, and, and they were symbolically brethren. But we have two witnesses that not only did the Lacedaemonians claim to be the brethren of the Judeans, but they were of the stock of Abraham. That's a genetic statement. That's a genetic assertion. It's in Josephus. It's in the Apocrypha in the first book of Maccabees. Now, maybe you'll understand why that's not in the Bible anymore, but it was originally in the King James Version. It is a historical book. It stands up to all historical scrutiny. And, of course, Jews would have said, your cattle and goods are ours, and ours are ours. And that's just a little pun I had to throw in there. None of these people were Jews. Now, many may object to identifying the later Corinthians of Paul's time as Dorians, and, and I've been confronted with this objection, because the city was destroyed and later rebuilt by the Romans. And this is true. For in 146 B.C., the Roman council, Lucius Mummius, or Mummius, captured Corinth and raised it by fire, selling the surviving populace into slavery, as was customary for the Romans to do. Giving the account, Strabo tells us that afterwards, the Sicaonians obtained most of the Corinthian country geography, Book A, Chapter 6. That the Sicaonians, those of the neighboring district, Sicaon was a city very near to Corinth, That the Sicaonians were also Dorian Greeks is evident in many places besides Theodorus Siculus in his fragments of Book 7 in Chapter 9, where he states, It remains for us to speak of Corinth and of Sicyon, and of the manner in which the territories of these cities were settled by the Dorians. Sicyon was a sort of sister city of Corinth, and it was its equal in the arts where Strabo says of Corinth, and I quote, for both here and in Sicaon, the arts of painting and modeling and all such arts of the craftsmen flourished most. Book 8, Chapter 6 of Geography, once again. So in this manner did the territory of Corinth retain a Dorian composition of its population, but that is not the entire story. Strabo speaks of the rebuilding of Corinth as such was ordered by Julius Caesar, which began about 44 B.C. And Strabo states that it was restored again because of its favorable position by the deified Caesar, meaning Julius, who colonized it with people that belonged for the most part to the freedmen class. Yet Diodorus Siculus, in the fragments of his 32nd book, in the Loeb Library, Loeb Classical Library Edition, Diodorus Siculus is recorded as having told us further, and I quote, 
Gaius Julius Caesar, who for his great deeds was entitled Divus, when he inspected the site of Corinth, was so moved by compassion and the thirst for fame that he set about restoring it with great energy. It is therefore just that this man and his high standard of conduct should receive our full approval, and that we should by our history accord him enduring praise for his generosity. For whereas his forefathers had harshly used the city, he by his clemency made amends for their unrelenting severity, preferring to forgive rather than to punish. Theodore Siculus, Library of History, Book 32, Chapter 27. Now the only way, in the words of Theodore Siculus, that Caesar's deeds could justly be called a restoring, a clemency, or forgiveness, as they are here, would be that the freedmen which Caesar let repopulate the rebuilt Corinth were descendants of those Corinthians enslaved in its destruction 102 years earlier. This is in keeping with Roman custom, as we see at Acts chapter 6, verse 9, where Judean freedmen were living in the homeland of their ancestors, who must have been taken captive in the Roman conquest of Judea by Pompeii some generations earlier. The settling of anyone but Dorians in a rebuilt Corinth could not have been termed clemency or forgiveness by Theodore Siculus. But rather, it would have been seen as an insult to the Sicaonians, to the Lacedaemonians, and to the rest of the Dorians of the Peloponnese. Yet an examination of Roman custom along with Theodorus' words surely implies that when Strabo attests that the restored Corinthians were for the most part of the freedmen class, he surely meant those freedmen descended from the original Corinthian stock taken captive. And I must add, something I didn't state in my original paper, that Theodorus Siculus himself, he was a Dorian Greek. He was from Agira in Sicily, a colony founded by Corinthians, thereby Theodorus being descended from Corinthians, he should know a Dorian Corinthian when he writes about one. Furthermore, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 tells the Corinthians, now, I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers, meaning his fathers and the Corinthians' fathers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all had passed through the sea. Therefore, telling the Corinthians that their ancestors had been in the Israelite exodus out of Egypt, Paul of Tarsus, is substantiating the letter of the Lacedaemonians to Judea, recorded by Josephus, and in the books of the Maccabees. The Corinthians were indeed descendants of the ancient Israelites. It was actually, I'll give an aside, the original story says that the sons of Heracles were ejected from the Peloponnesus by the Danans. 
And they got angry, and they went by sea, and they went and got the Dorians and brought them back to invade the Peloponnesus. That's the general tale given by the Greek mythographers. I honestly believe that Heracles is a myth created from the ancient seagoing Phoenicians who were traders, and there were probably some Canaanites among them. That's right in the Bible, right? The word Heracles, I believe, comes from the Hebrew word harakal. Harakal is singular. The plural, the plural is rakalim. Ha is the article, the definite article. Rakal is a merchant. Rakalim is plural. Harakalim, Heracles, pretty good. It's pretty convincing. The merchants of Palestine, they're the ones that brought the Dorians to Greece. The Corinthians were indeed descendants of the ancient Israelites. The records of Josephus attest to it. The books of the Maccabees attest to it. And the letters of Paul attest to it. Three witnesses. The circumstances of their coming to Greece and the text of Homer, who only knew them from Crete, support the historical testimony. So does archaeology. Linear B tablets. Linear B is a language known from Crete. Linear B tablets connecting the earliest residents of Sparta to Crete have been recently discovered. The Spartans were also Dorian Greeks, just like the Corinthians. Understanding the origins of the Dorian Greeks, of the Dorian Corinthians, one is able to understand why Paul said to them the things which he did in his epistles. In contrast, we have also seen in Acts chapter 17, in his discourse of the Areopagus, that Paul did not speak to the Athenians about anything from Scripture, nothing, which has to do exclusively with the children of Israel. Since the Athenians descended not from Israelites, but from Jephthite Ionians, which helps to establish... without a doubt, the Israel identity context of the message found in Paul's letters. He wasn't spiritualizing anything. If Paul was spiritualizing the covenants, he would have spoken to the Athenians and to the Lycaonians about Abraham, Moses, the law, redemption, the New Covenant, he didn't talk to them about anything like that. The Lycaonians or the Athenians, two witnesses. Acts 
chapter 18, verse 2. And finding a certain Judean named Aquilus, Aquila in Roman, in Latin, and in the English translations, of Pontus by birth, recently having come from Italy, and Priscilla, his wife, on account of Claudius ordering all of the Judeans to depart from Rome, he went with them. And the sentence isn't complete until we, until we address or present verse 3, but I'll cut it off here for now. The word genos may be read in the text here as race rather than birth. It's certainly birth, and this shows that it can certainly be interpreted as birth, because Pontus was a rather large district in Anatolia, bordering the southeast of the Black Sea, and it was inhabited by people of several races, several Adamic races, none of which were called Pontic. The word Pontus refers to the sea, right? The word denos is birthed again later in this chapter in reference to an Alexandrian in verse 24. It's used in a similar context. You can't be an Alexandrian by race, but you could be an Egyptian or a Greek or a Judean living in Alexandria. You could be an Alexandrian by birth. The word Ginea in Acts 8.33, where Christ is the subject, and who shall announce his birth is the way I interpreted that in that chapter, Acts 8.33. I believe that's the right quote anyway. In Paul's letters, at Romans 16.3, and at 2 Timothy 4.19, all of the oldest manuscripts have Prisca, but it's the same person as Priscilla or Priscilla in Greek. At 1 Corinthians 16.19, some manuscripts have Priscilla and some manuscripts have Prisca. Here in Acts, in chapter 18, the woman is mentioned three times, and the manuscripts unanimously, they all read Priscilla. Apparently, Prisca may have been a shortened form, an affectionate form of the name, but Luke always used her full name in his writing. The Codex Vaticanus here wants the explicit mention of Claudius. The reference, it, it's in all the other manuscripts, right? The reference is to Claudius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor from 41 to 54 AD. While the persecutions of Christians under Nero are much better documented and were even described by an eyewitness, it happened during his adult lifetime, in the person of the historian Tacitus, the persecution of Christians under Claudius is not well documented outside of Scripture. In Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 27, these letters were written a couple of years after this event here is referred to in Acts chapter 18. Paul advises that perhaps Christians, and you'll only see this in the Christogonian New Testament, Paul advises that perhaps Christians may not want to marry because of the present violence. And that's a reference that most, trans most translations completely misinterpret. 
the, 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 the present necessity or something like that the King James has. Paul means to refer to the present violence. Christians were indeed being persecuted under Claudius Caesar in various places. And we see that in Judea. We see that in Judea in the time of Herod Agrippa I. We've already seen it. And Herod Agrippa II. Those persecutions may be on a smaller scale than the persecutions of Christians by Nero and by later emperors. However, they were persecutions nonetheless, and lives were lost nonetheless. In Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars, which is probably from the late in the second half of the second century A.D., after 120 A.D., I believe, Suetonius wrote. In his works, Lives of the Twelve Caesars, Claudius, the part on Claudius, part 25, we see the following brief reference, which most likely describes this very event, and I quote, Since the Jews, meaning the Judeans, constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, he expelled them from Rome. Now the word Crestus comes from a Greek word meaning good. And apparently it was used as an alternative for Christus which is from the Greek word meaning anointed. The confusion is not made in the New Testament concerning Christ, where he's always called Christos. However, some ancient manuscripts do have the word Christian, C-H-R-E-S-T-I-N, in the places where the text may be expected to read Christian. And it seems that some writers did have that confusion. So it's possible, it's very possible that Suetonius' reference to Crestus is indeed a reference to Christ. But from this it seems that Suetonius made a chronological error, or simply was not aware that Christ was no longer earthbound at this time, approximately 49 A.D., where he discusses the later persecutions of Christians under Nero, the historian Tacitus did understand the execution of Christ. And he mentions the execution of Christ explicitly in his analysis of Rome and says that Christ was executed in the time of Tiberius. Any observance of the absence of a mention of this edict by Claudius in in Tacitus's Annals of Rome should be accompanied with an acknowledgement of the fact that portions both large and small are wanting from Tacitus's writing relating to the reign of Claudius, as well as to those of the other emperors of the period. The entire reign of Caligula is wanting in Tacitus, at least half of the records of the reign of Claudius, a good portion of the reigns of Nero and Tiberius. The Tacitus wrote about a good portion of that is wanting. It's a a shame that so much of Tacitus was lost, but that's history. Acts 18, verse 3, 
continuing the sentence from verse 2. And because being, Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila in verse 2, right? And because being in the same trade, he abode with them and they worked. For they were tent makers by trade. The Codex Beze wants those words. They were tent makers by trade. And he argued in the assembly hall during each Sabbath and persuaded Judeans and Greeks. Paul and Corinth. Here we learn for the first time that Paul had a trade. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, writing these people of this assembly, that this Christian assembly that he founds, Paul recounts his persecution, his being in need, and his having to work to support himself while spreading the gospel, all in re relation to his experience in Corinth, where he said in part from verse 11, until the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are naked, and we are beaten repeatedly, and we are unestablished, which basically means that they had no permanent residence. And we toil, laboring with our own hands. He also mentioned working to support himself at 2 Thessalonians 3.8 in his explanation to them that he did not burden them while he was in Macedonia. And 2 Thessalonians 3.8, that letter, that epistle to the Thessalonians, we will discover here, was probably written during this stay of Paul's in Corinth. Verse 5. And as both Silas and Timotheus came down from Macedonia, Paul was impelled by the word, where the majority text has spirit, Paul was impelled by the word, affirming to the Judeans, Yahshua to be the Christ. In his first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6, Thessalonica being in Macedonia, Paul wrote, and I quote, but now Timothy, coming to us from you, and having announced to us the good news of your faith and love, and that you always have a good memory of us, longing to see us exactly as we also you. Because of this, we have been encouraged, brethren, concerning you, in all of our oppression and anguish because of your faith. And with this, we can clearly identify the point in his ministry where Paul wrote that epistle. Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians at this point. And this observation also marks 1 Thessalonians as the earliest of Paul's 14 surviving epistles. It is evident by the circumstances that Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians was written only a short time after the first. The Sylvanus of Paul's letters must be Silas. We have Prisca and Priscilla, right? Luke apparently always used a shortened form of the name. Luke always called him Silas. 
But Paul and his epistles always use the full form. And therefore, both Timothy and Silas, Paul always called him Silvanus in his epistles. But they're the same individual. That's why Silvanus is never mentioned in the book of Acts. And that's why Silas is never mentioned in Paul's epistles. Because Paul called him Silvanus. Luke called him Silas. Therefore, both Timothy and Silas were still with Paul when 2 Thessalonians was written. Its lack of a lengthy salutation, its lack of exhortations for greetings, and its treatment of a very few topics in a brief manner, along with a brief reminder of Paul's having taught them such things while he was with them, 2 Thessalonians 2.5 all seem to indicate that this was a quick follow-up letter to the Thessalonians, written a short time after the first letter, in order to clarify certain points in Paul's teachings. So while Paul was in Corinth, I believe it would be safe to say, he wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and they are the earliest of the 14 and I count Hebrews as belonging to Paul, it certainly does, they are the earliest of the 14 of his epistles, which we have. There may surely have been many other epistles which are missing. And it's, it's certain, it's absolutely certain, that there's at least two of Paul's epistles missing. There was a Corinthians, there was an epistle to the Corinthians which preceded either of the two which survived to us. And there was an epistle to the Laodiceans which is lost. And that's mentioned in one of Paul's other letters. It's not mentioned that it's lost, it's mentioned that it existed. Verse 6. But upon their opposition and blaspheming, shaking off the garments, he said to them, Your blood is upon your heads. I now clean of this, or the Codex Bese says, I now clean of you, shall go to the people. I hope you didn't expect me to say Gentiles. In place of the phrase containing the word people at the end of this verse, the King James Version ends the verse with Paul saying, from henceforth I will go to the nations. I'm sorry, to the Gentiles. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. That's what the King James has. Other translations, such as the Authorized Standard Version, follow that foolishness even the word in the King James Version, which is translated henceforth in this verse, does not bear such a meaning. The Greek word nun, Strong's number 3568, means only now, as in at the present time. The translators clearly rendered this phrase in order to fit an agenda. As we had discussed at length, when we presented Acts chapter 13, encountering a very similar statement at Acts 13.46, Paul is not somehow abandoning Jews for Gentiles here. 
And there we noted that the King James Version itself has people for the Greek word ethnos, where it is plural, in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. And the King James has people for the word ethnos one time out of its two appearances in Romans chapter 10, verse 19. It actually had the audacity to translate it as people once and as Gentiles once in that passage. In fact, Paul has founded another Judean assembly hall or synagogue when he arrived in Ephesus over 18 months after this statement was uttered as it is recorded in both Acts 18, verse 19, and Acts 19, verse 8. So Paul is not abandoning Jews for Gentiles here. If he shows up in another Judean assembly hall a few months later to talk to them. Both Priscilla and Aquila were Judeans. And as we clearly see here in verse 4, in this assembly hall, Paul had already persuaded Judeans and Greeks to Christ. It is further explained in Acts 18.8 that even the leader of this assembly hall, Crispus, was persuaded to Christ along with his whole house. Rather, the Greek word ethnos, as we explained in Acts chapter 13, being commonly used in the plural, ta ethne, to designate a group consisting of people from diverse nations. The word should certainly be translated as people here, as Paul is only explaining to the Judeans of this assembly hall that he will bypass the assembly hall and its leaders and address the people directly on his own. Therefore, according to verses 7 and 11 here, he spent the next year and a half teaching the people both Judeans and Greeks, at the house of Titus Eustace, or Titius Eustace. So once again, we see that the Jew versus Gentile paradigm of the mainstream denominational churches crumbles with a simple investigation of not only the Greek text of Acts, but even the English the lines between those who accepted Christ and those who rejected him must be drawn differently. It wasn't Jew versus Gentile. And the reasons for those rejecting him must be accounted differently. It wasn't Jew rejecting Christ versus Gentile receiving Christ. Or perhaps Paul is a constant liar and a hypocrite. Instead, Paul is no liar, nor is he a hypocrite. But the mainstream denominational churches certainly are all liars and hypocrites. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, as Christ explains in Luke chapter 11, and in John chapter 8, the people who rejected him in Judea didn't have the same genealogy as he did didn't have the same origins that he did. As Paul explains in Romans 9, the reason why so many Judeans rejected Christ is that so many Judeans were not Israelites. They were Edomites. A theme expressed throughout the New Testament, which the mainstream denominational sects ignore. You don't believe me. 
because you're not my sheep, period. The mainstream denominational churches teach, they teach, you're not my sheep because you don't believe me. That's not what he said. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. You're not an Israelite. You're an Edomite, you're a Canaanite, and you're accursed. Acts 18, verse 7. And removing from there, the Codex Bezai rather oddly has removing from Aquila here, or Aquilus. And removing from there, he went into a house of someone named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of Yahweh whose house was abutting the assembly hall. And Crispus, the leader of the assembly hall, believed in the prince with his whole house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were immersed. This is one instance where perhaps the oldest and best manuscripts shouldn't have been the ones that I followed, right? Titius Eustace. The Codices Sinaiticus and Laudianus. Well, the Sina- I followed the Codex Vaticanus here. The Codex Sinaiticus I should have followed. It's just as old as the Codex Vaticanus. The Sinaiticus and Laudianus have Titus Eustace, or Justice, where the Codex Beze and the majority text only have his second name, Eustace. And the Codex Alexandrinus has only a house of one Eustace. The text follows the text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the Codex Vaticanus, having Titius Eustace. With the realization that this Titius Eustace was very proper, very probably the Titus of Paul's epistles, it may have been better to follow the Codex Sinaiticus in this instance and write the word Titus here. Verse 9. And in the night, the prince said to Paul in the vision, Do not fear, rather speak, and do not be silent. Because I am with you, and no one shall make an attempt upon you for which to do you evil, since many people are with me in this city. And he sat, meaning Paul, and he sat for a year and six months, teaching among them the word of Yahweh. As we have already explained at length, the Corinthians being Dorian Greeks, had descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament. The Romans, Trojan Judah, the Romans, it can be demonstrated, likewise descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament. If Yahweh God tells Paul not to be concerned for his safety and says, many people are with me in this city, and then subsequently we see the Greeks and Romans defend Paul against the accusation of the Jews, then apparently, apparently the Greeks and Romans are the people of God and not the Jews. Verse 12. Then with Galleon being proconsul of Achaia, the Judeans with one accord rose up against Paul and led him before the judgment seat saying that contrary to the law, he convinces men to worship God. And Paul, 
being about to open his mouth. Galleon said to the Judeans, Now if there was any injustice or wicked crime, O Judeans, according to reason I would support you. But if it is disputes about words and names and the law according to you, you see to them. I have no desire to be a judge of these things. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Kipling wrote a poem about this very passage. I won't repeat it here. I'll spare you that. Once again, in the records of Acts, the Jews attempt, or the, Jude the disbelieving Judeans, attempted to take advantage of secular law in order to persecute Christianity. And Gallio, realizing that, would not stand for it. There is another statement concerning Claudius Caesar in the same passage of Suetonius that we cited earlier in the lies of the Twelve Caesars. Claudius, part 25 which is relevant to discussions of both the regulation of religion in the empire, which we had also presented here when we presented Acts chapter 16, when we encountered verse 21 of that chapter, and which is also relevant to the discussion which we had in reference to Athens and to the Eleusinian mystery cult, as we presented Acts chapter 17. And I quote from Suetonius once again, He, meaning Claudius, utterly abolished the cruel and inhuman religion of the Druids among the Gauls, which under Augustus had merely been prohibited to Roman citizens. On the other hand, he even attempted to transfer the Eleusinian rites from Attica to Rome and had the temple of Venus Erycina in Sicily, which had fallen to ruin through age, restored at the expense of the treasury of the Roman people. With this we see that the emperors indeed had the power to legislate the religion of the people, and they did. And therefore the men of Philippi, being confronted with the gospel by Paul and Silas, had exclaimed, Acts 16.21, that they declare customs which are not lawful for us to receive nor to do, being Romans. Here, we see the Jews claim that Paul, contrary to the law, convinces men to worship God. There was an inscription found at Delphi in Greece. It was first published in 1905. Now it's known as the Gallio inscription. This inscription represents part of a letter from the Emperor Claudius concerning Gallio himself. It was written in 52 AD, and it establishes with certainty that Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia in 51 and 52 AD. His term, according to several scholars of the period, very likely began in the summer of 51 AD. This accords with the general narrative of Acts and of Paul's chronology as it was transmitted in the epistle to the Galatians, which puts the Acts chapter 15 visit to Jerusalem, by my reckoning, 
at about 47 AD, keeping in mind that this is the end of Paul's 18-month sojourn in Corinth. It's towards the end where finally the Judeans try to accuse him before Gallio. Verse 17. Then they all, taking Sosthenes, the leader of the assembly hall, let me say that the codices is Beze, Laudianus, and the majority text have then all the Greeks taking Sosthenes, the leader of the assembly hall, beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallion, or Gallio, cared for not any of these things. In verse 8, we are told that Crispus, who apparently became a Christian, was the leader of this assembly hall. However, now, this is at least 18 months later, according to Luke's account. And Sosthenes, who was obviously hostile to Christianity, was its leader. He didn't prevail before Gallio. And apparently, the Greeks associated with Gallio's judgment seat were those that beat him, for probably for harassing the proconsul. That, that, that must have been the penalty in that time for filing a frivolous lawsuit. Too bad we don't use it today. Verse 18. Then Paul, remaining thereafter many days with the brethren, making arrangements, sailed away to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila with him, cutting the hair from his head in Cancrea, for he had a vow. Now, Paul must have stopped in Cancrea and cut his hair before he sailed for Syria. It's about six miles from Corinth to Cancrea. We'll see that shortly. That would be a travel on either by carriage or on foot, right? He would sail from Cancrea to get to Syria. The Greek word, apotasso, first, is to make arrangements here. Similar to the way in which the word was used in Luke 9.61, it is to dispose of, in the context referring to property, in Luke 14.33, the word appears again in this chapter in verse 21, apotasso, tasso means to arrange, apotasso means to make arrangements for something. I don't know why the lexicographers follow the King James translators and define it as bidding somebody goodbye. I don't get that, but that's okay. The Codex Beze has a prayer, or the word prosuge, 4335, and the word in the text in the other manuscripts is UK 2171, where the rendering, he had a vow, is quite literal. In the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, using this very verse as an example, they say of the phrase, I can, you can, they define it as to be under a vow. It is of interest to note an event which was described by Josephus in Antiquities Book 19, and which happened sometime before this, possibly about seven or perhaps eight years at least, 
where Josephus says that in Judea, Herod Agrippa I, who died in 44, BC, 44 AD, right? Herod Agrippa I had ordained that many of the Nazarites should have their heads shorn or all their hair cut off, right? The term Nazarites was that term, and Josephus used it also in this sense, was that term by which the Jews were referring to Christians. Now we also see this in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, where Paul admits to being of the sect of the Nazarenes, right? This Herod, Herod Agrippa I, died about seven years earlier than this in 44 A.D., recorded in Acts chapter 12. We see in Acts chapter 21, at verses 23 and 24, that Paul was instructed by James to take certain men and have their heads shorn because they had a vow upon them. Now, it's impossible to tell with any certainty if this vow described here had anything to do at all with these other events. I'm going to make a conjecture, and, and this is a parenthetical statement. For my part, I can only suspect that because the Christians of Palestine had been ordered to shave their heads, that perhaps Paul vowed to do the same thing when returning there, which is why he's doing it at this point. However, that's only a guess, but that's the only sense I could make out of this passage. Corinth sat on the Peloponnesus quite close to the isthmus, which is the thin strip of land connecting the peninsula to the mainland. It was close to the western side of the isthmus near the Gulf of Corinth, which has an outlet towards Italy in the Adriatic Sea. Cancrea was a port town about six miles to the east on the opposite side of the isthmus. On the Saronic Gulf, which has an outlet towards Anatolia and the Aegean Sea. Phoebe the woman who delivered Paul's epistle to the Romans sometime after this, the epistle to the Romans was not written at this time. At one time I thought perhaps it was. I will establish that in Acts chapter 20, I pray. Phoebe, the woman who delivered Paul's epistle to the Romans sometime after this, was from Cancrea. She's mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 27. Acts chapter 18, verse 19. And they arrived in Ephesus, and he left them. Then he himself, entering into the assembly hall, conversed, and, and that word is dialego, and perhaps it means argued, conversed with the Judeans. Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, here it's recorded, somewhere in Ephesus, and Luke does not supply many details. But Paul and Luke must have seen them again because Luke records the brief account of their encounter with Apollos at the end of this chapter. So Luke must have seen Priscilla and Aquila again to obtain the record of that account, right? They are not mentioned in Acts again after this chapter. However, when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans a couple of years after this, which I hope to establish when we present Acts chapter 20, Priscilla and Aquila are once again in Rome. 
So they've left Ephesus. That's recorded in Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Yet, when Paul is in Rome, when Paul's in Rome at the end of his life, and it's very manifest that the second epistle to Timothy was written in Paul's very last days, when Paul is in Rome at the end of his life, he writes in his second epistle to Timothy, Priscilla and Aquila are once again in Ephesus where Timothy also is, and that's in 2 Timothy 4.19. While it is circumstantial, it seems that Priscilla and Aquila had ties to both Ephesus and Rome and traveled back and forth from place to place several times, and we see that here in Acts and in Paul's epistles. Verse 20. And upon their asking him to remain... Some manuscripts have remained with them. For a longer time, he did not assent, rather making arrangements and saying, Again, I shall return to you, Yahweh willing. And he set sail from Ephesus. Both the Codex Beze and the majority text upon which the King James is based embellish the statement attributed to Paul here in verse 21, Again, I shall return to you, Yahweh willing. I'll only quote the majority text version. The Beze is, is similar. By all means, it is necessary for me going to Jerusalem to make the feast. But again, I shall return to you, God willing. There's a record here that Paul goes back to Syria. But he's not going to Jerusalem. He goes to Caesarea. And then he goes, which is in Samaria, and then he goes to Antioch. There's no record that he went to Jerusalem. This seems to be an interpolation on the part of the Codex Beze and the majority text. And probably out of confusion with Paul's final trip to Syria to go to Jerusalem, which is not recorded until the end of Acts chapter 20 into Acts chapter 21. Verse 22. And coming back into Caesarea, going up and greeting the assembly, he went down into Antiochia. Now he went down because Antiochia also on the coast, even though it's north, it's evidently of a... Of a um, lower latitude than Caesarea. There must be a reason why he went down into it. Usually Greeks go down to the sea or they go down to a lower latitude. North and south, we use up and down to refer to north and south quite often in, in our English vernacular. That's not the way the Greeks used it. Antioch was um, also by the sea. Caesarea was a port city, of course. That was on the sea. Antioch was much further north than Caesarea. Caesarea Philippe is where Paul lands here. And that was the port city on the shores of Samaria. Paul lands there once again in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. In Acts chapter 21, he visits the home of Philip the Evangelist there. And that certainly seems to be a reference to Philip the Apostle, who last appeared in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, where he was left in Caesarea. 
We have already compared the chronology of Acts with comments regarding certain events related to Paul's ministry found in his epistle to the Galatians. We did that at the end of our presentation of Acts chapter 15. Doing that, and once again discussing it in our comments where Paul circumcised Timothy, as it's recorded in the opening verses of Acts chapter 16, we asserted that Paul had to confront Peter in Antioch, as he describes in Galatians chapter 2, some time after he had circumcised Timothy, or else he would have been a hypocrite for having done so. Here in Acts chapter 18, although nothing of his stay is recorded here in Acts, Paul once again visits Antioch, and for the last time, this is the only opportunity he had in which to meet Peter as he describes having confronted him in Galatians chapter 2. This must be when it happened. Evidently, Paul also saw Barnabas here, as we see in Galatians 2.13. And from this, it is also possible to discern that Titus, the Titius Eustace, or Titus Eustace, mentioned in Acts 18.7, is indeed Titus. And he, coming to Christ in Corinth, accompanied him on this trip. Because Paul says in Galatians, yet Titus being with me. There is no Titus in Scripture before this chapter, before me, Paul meets Titus Eustace in Corinth. There's no Titus in Scripture. Paul says in Galatians that Titus was with him when he went to Antioch. and had his confrontation with Peter in Galatians chapter 2. That Titus must be this Titus here in Acts. That clears up the identification of Titus, and it pinpoints when Paul confronted Peter. It had to happen right here. Titus must have left Corinth. It's not mentioned in the account. There's always people traveling with Paul who are not always mentioned by Luke as they travel. But Titus must have accompanied Paul on this trip, and that's when Titus would not be circumcised, as Paul describes in Galatians chapter 2. And that's when he confronts Peter, right here. It is also apparent, although it cannot be asserted with absolute certainty, that it is here from Antioch that Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatians. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 20, I have desired to be present with you even now and to change my tone because I am perplexed with you. And as this chapter of Acts attests, Paul indeed goes on to visit them after leaving Antioch. But aside from expressing his desire to visit them, as he says in chapter 2 of his epistle, in chapter 2, verse 11, and I quote, but when Cephas had come to Antioch, and he says that as if he was still in Antioch when he wrote those words. 
Now, this is all circumstantial. However, I would feel safe in imagining that the epistle to the Galatians was indeed written at this time. Paul had evidently first preached throughout Galatia on his way to the Troad, which is recorded in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Now, the subscripts in the Greek, we don't see them in English Bibles too often. Sometimes they're there in footnotes. The subscripts of many of Paul's epistles claim various places for authorship on each of them. And quite often, different manuscripts have different subscripts on Paul's epistles. And they don't agree because it, it seems, reading all the subscripts, that different assemblies were competing for attention and claiming that Paul's epistle was written from their assembly. Well, the Codex Vaticanus claims that the epistle to the Galatians was written from Rome. But all of the other ancient codices which have a subscript on Galatians make no competing claim, but they don't say it was written from Rome. The epistle to the Galatians bears none of the evidence that Paul was a prisoner when he wrote it. Paul's epistles written from Rome do bear evidence that he was a prisoner when he wrote them, and there are seven of them. So I reject the notion that the epistle to the Galatians was written from Rome. I'm certain that the epistle to the Galatians was written here from Antioch. Verse 23. And spending some time, he departed, passing through successively the land of Galatia and Phrygia, confirming all of the students. Now, some manuscripts have epistairizo instead of stairizo, and that would be translated as reinforcing all of the students. The, the, mass, the, the majority text is one of those manuscripts. That a reference to Galatia, because some people imagine Paul's references to Galatia as the entire, as being a reference to the entire province as the Romans knew it. And that's the problem. There was a kingdom of Galatia, which encompassed only the northern part of what later became the Roman province of Galatia. So this it might be a little confusing, right? That the reference to Galatia is indeed a reference to the Celtic kingdom in the north, as it was known to the Greeks and not to the Roman province, which was much larger, is fully evident as Luke, everywhere in his writing in Acts, distinguishes Lycaonia, Galatia, and Phrygia all throughout the book of Acts. However, Lycaonia, Galatia, and Phrygia were all part of the Roman province of the name of Galatia. 
Now, Luke sometimes does use the names of Roman provinces. He does in Asia. He does in Achaia. But not here. He distinguishes here. Everywhere in Acts, he distinguishes between Lycaonia, Galatia, and Phrygia. Yet all three of those districts known to the Greeks were part of the Roman province. Luke, by distinguishing these three regions, indicates that the Greek cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, which are in Lycaonia, are not meant where Galatia is referenced, but rather the references to Galatia in the book of Acts, and I'm certain in Paul's epistle, are to the Celtic kingdom, kingdom of Galatia, which is in the northern part of the province. Verse 24. And a certain Judean named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, Genos, of a learned man, arrived in Ephesus, who was capable in the writings. He was instructed, now, now the Codex Bezae interpolates the words in the fatherland here, evidently a reference to Judea. He was instructed in the way of the prince, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught precisely the things concerning Yahshua. Now the, 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 the majority text has concerning the Lord here. All the other manuscripts have the name of Christ, Yahshua knowing only the immersion of John, water baptism. And he began to speak openly in the assembly hall. And Priscilla and Aquila, hearing him, took him aside and more precisely exhibited the way of Yahweh to him. Now, as we have seen, as we have been asserting throughout our presentation of the book of Acts, the apostles have moved beyond the ritual of water baptism and on to a better paradigm in Christ, which is the faith that by the word of Yahweh, their God, the children of Israel, have been cleansed. As we see Paul attest in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. And as Peter attests in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. And as Christ himself professes, as it is recorded in John chapter 15, verse 3, where he said, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Apollos, why would this be mentioned? Apollos only knew the baptism of John. And Priscilla and Aquila, hearing him, took him aside and more precisely exhibited the way of God to him, which is obviously not the baptism of John. Ephesians, from, verse, from chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. Husbands, love the wives just as Christ has also loved the assembly and has surrendered himself for it in order that he would consecrate it, cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word. The bath of the water is an allegory. It's the word of God that cleanses, as Christ attests in John 15, 3. 
when we become obedient to that word. 1 Peter 3.21 Which also now a representation saves you. Immersion or baptism. Not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, but a demand of a good conscience for Yahweh. Through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ. Through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ. A couple of years after Christ was baptized in the River Jordan, he told his apostles, I have a baptism to be baptized in. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we are to be baptized in his death. Peter attests in 1 Peter chapter 3.21. that we should clean our consciences. We do that with the word of the gospel by adhering to it because the real baptism is through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ. Water baptism is a thing of the past. The gospel of Christ transcends all rituals. You can't do a damn thing to save yourself. Verse 27, and upon his wishing to pass through to Achaia, the brethren wrote to the students, urging them to accept him, meaning Apollos. Corinth is in the district of Achaia. Corinth was in the Roman province of Achaia, which was a part of the Peloponnesus at this time. The brethren wrote to the students, urging them to accept him, who arriving greatly helped those who believed through favor. The papyrus, known as P38, which is dated to circa 300 AD, has the last part of this verse to read, who sojourning in Akahia greatly helped in the assemblies. Verse 28. For vigorously did he thoroughly confute the Judeans in public, exhibiting through the writings Yahshua to be the Christ. Homer used the term Achaeans to describe all of the Greeks of the period of which he wrote. In later Greek history, and at this time, the term was only used of the northwest portion of the Peloponnesus. In the New Testament, it is certainly a reference to the Roman province, which encompassed central Greece and the Peloponnesus. Apollos is in Corinth at the opening of Acts chapter 19, and he must have become quite dear to the Corinthians, since he is mentioned quite frequently in Paul's first epistle to them, although he is not mentioned in his second epistle to them. He is apparently with Paul when the first epistle is written. Evidence of that, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12. Apollos is only mentioned again in Scripture in the epistle to Titus, chapter 3, verse 13. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night presenting the fifth part of explaining to Seedline Pragmatic Genesis, picking up at 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, I believe. I'll be here next week, Yahweh willing, with Acts chapter 19. Good night.